When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reconsider, the podcast where we don't do the thinking for you. We are, of course, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Now, today, I am doing something that some of our Patreon, top-tier patrons, have asked for now and again in the past, which is to comment on something that is a little bit more immediately in the news. So instead of sort of doing like a general deep dive, providing context on some sort of topic, something that's going on. And this is often hard for Eric and I to do uh, because... You know, we both have full-time jobs, and we usually publish on a twice-a-month schedule, so sometimes we just can't respond quickly enough. But there is something going on that, that has occurred in the last 24 hours, 48 hours by the time this podcast gets posted that seems important enough to just throw a quick one out to chat about. Eric won't be joining today. He is super crushed right now, crushing it, I should say, at his startup. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, today's topic with you on my own. Now, I'm sitting here with a Brooklyn-ish 2009 special. It's Brooklyn-ish is a type of scotch. Uh, it's a special edition called The Organic that I got as a Christmas gift. And it's delicious. And what better to drink when you're going to be talking about nuclear war? A little bit of whiskey. Now, actually... We're not, don't get me wrong, not trying to be sensational, not saying that nuclear war is coming or anything like that. But India did just conduct a first, or at least a first in a long time, which was a, an airstrike on Pakistani territory. And of course, both Pakistan and India are nuclear powers. So that question, even if it isn't, you know, that threat isn't imminent, is always sort of lurking in the back of your mind. And so that's what we're going to chat about a little bit today. Now, part of the function of throwing up a quick episode is I have done no episode mapping, structural outline or anything like that. And usually Eric and I put quite a bit of research into each episode so we have at least sort of like a skeleton to guide what we need to talk about i haven't done any of that so if i seem like i'm rambling now and, and again then apologies in advance i have done a lot of research on this topic in part for my job at geopolitical futures and we will be publishing on this airstrike the strategic and geopolitical context and consequences of it um, 
soon in greater detail, maybe tomorrow or, or later this week. So if you're interested in this topic or really any topic in the world of geopolitics or global affairs, do check out Geopolitical Futures. We do good work and the subscriptions are very affordable for a lot of content. Okay, plug done. So why is this a first? Clearly, India and Pakistan have gone to war before. They have kind of been fighting a low-level conflict in Kashmir ever since the partition in 1947, which is when the entity that was the British Raj uh, became independent and split into India and Pakistan. And although they're, they're, they're constantly fighting in and over Kashmir, this is the first time, I believe, since early 1970s when the two were at war another time that India has actually carried out a cross-border airstrike on Pakistani territory proper so not in Kashmir where there's a dispute over who which country controls what because India often will launch airstrikes in Pakistani occupied Kashmir and there are constant skirmishes going on the ground people are getting killed this is sort of ongoing but this is the first time according to most sources that I have checked, and I, I have double-checked this but haven't triple-checked this, this is the first time that India has conducted an airstrike on Pakistani territory proper. And the airstrike was in response to a terrorist ca- attack carried out by a group called uh, Jaish-e-Mohammed, which is a Pakistani-based Sunni jihadist group. And it, it, it happened, I think, last week or a week and a half ago, um, this this attack occurred in Pulwama. About 40 people were killed, and India's airstrike was a retaliation to that attack. The information that we know about the attack is a little sketchy because a lot of the Indian sources are going to be very pro-India. Uh, we you know we did this great airstrike, killed a bunch of terrorists, and the Pakistani side is going to say the opposite, that India violated our, our territorial integrity, no one was killed, it was a failed mission, whatever. So a lot of the sources right now have that sort of perspective, and I'll do my best to recall when I present any information about this incident, whether it came from a Indian or Pakistani source, uh, if I forget what one of the sources are, then I ask for forgiveness in advance. But the... Immediate consequences, like I said, vary quite a bit. So on, on the Indian side, they're claiming that a Jaish-e-Mohammed terrorist training group uh, or training camp was attacked and something like 300 casualties resulted from the airstrike. And there's no clarification about whether that's 300 dead, 300 injured. On the Pakistani side, they are saying that the airstrike killed no one. The Indian jets, which were... Mirage 2000s, uh, there are believed to be 12 jets that attacked the Pakistani uh, positions of JEM, which is the acronym for Jish and Mohammed, uh, were rushed. They deployed their payload too early, didn't hit anything, and some Pakistani general has posted a bunch of pictures purportedly showing that the, the Indian attack really didn't do anything. And really, it's just a bunch of pictures of dirt. So it's basically impossible to even know what the photos are about. 
But Pakistan is saying the airstrikes didn't do anything. India fumbled the mission. And India is saying that it was highly successful. Now, there's some reasons to believe the Indian side. Um, there was a report out in... Oh, let me see where it was. Of course, now I'm not going to be able to find it. In the Hindu, the Hindu.com, it is uh, very clearly an Indian source that doesn't talk about how effective or not the airstrike was, but does mention what munitions were used in the airstrike. And they were a bunch of Israeli-produced precision-guided missiles, uh, like this SPICE, which is an acronym for... What is it an acronym for? Let's see. Um, let's see. Smart, precise, impact, and cost-effective. SPICE. And... Crystal Maze MK2, basically a bunch of precision-guided missiles provided by Israel that weigh a lot, 2,000 pounds, about 1,000 kilograms each. There are also reports from the same article that the Indian Air Force had deployed um, some Israeli, uh, basically, monitoring aircraft to just kind of keep track of the mission. So if, if this is true, those are very advanced munitions that would once locked on a target probably not miss, especially if you have 12 different jets um, flying at a specific target that, but you know, again, this consider the source, right. is coming from the Hindu. So we're not a hundred percent sure what the casual ca casualty count is yet. The official story is basically that the Indian government got some intelligence that, a bunch of these JEM terrorists were hanging out at this camp in Pakistan, basically unawares because India does not or has not conducted airstrikes in Pakistan proper for a long, long time. So they were caught off guard and they were able to kill a bunch of people. That was kind of the, the story on the Indian side. Now, both of these countries are nuclear powers, and it's pretty unusual for nuclear powers to come into direct conflict with one another. One of the theories behind nuclear deterrence is that it will limit the scale of military engagements and also probably limit direct engagements. But India and Pakistan did go to war in 1999. They were both nuclear powers at that time already. So it's happened before. I believe this is the first time that two, that a nuclear power conducted an airstrike on in the territory of another nuclear power. So I believe that's a first. And the the risk of course when there's any sort of conflict between nuclear powers is that m minor engagements can escalate quickly into more serious potentially nu nuclear conflicts now as i'll, I'll kind of lay out my case on the, in the in the rest of this episode i don't really think that that's where it's going I'm not trying to be sensational and say that because there's this airstrike which is somewhat unprecedented that there's going to be a nuclear engagement not what i'm saying but you can't not consider the risk of use of nuclear weapons just because they haven't happened since World War II, since more than one major power had nuclear weapons. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we've got this whole deterrence thing figured out lock and key and there's never going to be another use of a nuclear weapon ever again. Uh, certainly that's the case with non-state groups. There is an attack by a Pakistani-based uh, terrorist group, either the Pakistani Taliban or maybe it was even Al-Qaeda. 
against a Pakistani military institution where they're planning to have submarines with uh, nuclear capability. They don't. Pakistan doesn't have this ability yet. They can't launch submarine-based uh, ballistic missiles yet, but they're kind of close. And this terrorist attack occurred at that military facility, so it kind of raised the question of like, okay, well, could non-state actors get to Pakistan's nuclear weapons? Like, how secure are they actually going to be? But anyways, point is, we don't know if nuclear weapons will, will never be used again just because there hasn't been use of a nuclear weapon since 1945. Now, that means that we kind of need to consider what each country's, Pakistan and India's, nuclear doctrine is. And nuclear doctrine is kind of a funny thing because in a way, it's in the world of international affairs and geopolitics and all that. And in another way, it's like all psychology and how you force the other person to fear certain scenarios and you can only force them to fear certain scenarios if you actually have the ability to bring about that scenario that you're threatening them with. I mean, so in a sense, it's just military is an extension of politics, but it's it's also sort of beyond that because we, there are precedents with conventional military force. Wars have been going on throughout history. There's not a lot of precedents for nuclear force, especially not since we've developed these really, really big bombs after World War II that everyone has today, basically. So India and Pakistan both have nuclear weapons. India officially has a no-first-use doctrine. And what that means is they have basically come out and said, look, we're not going to use nuclear weapons first in any sort of conflict. We will only use them in retaliation to a first strike. And you might be thinking, look, that's kind of why would they why would they say they're not? Doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of deterrence? Well, not necessarily, because if you have a sufficiently overwhelming nuclear force and you can like almost guarantee the other side that even if you don't strike first, you're going to have enough firepower to destroy them entirely. They're going to think twice about using weapons in the first place. That's kind of the theory. The place that that falls short a little bit is if all of your nuclear uh, installations, so like, for example, all of India's nuclear land-based installations get get destroyed in a first strike by Pakistan. And that that's kind of one of the first things that would be taken out in a nuclear war. It wouldn't just be against major cities, especially if it was a first strike. It'd be against all of the nuclear institutions of the other country, or at least as many as possible, to limit their ability to retaliate. Now, clearly, whether or not a country has the intelligence to do something like that is... A very good question, but that's the risk, that if you don't hit first, then your ability to retaliate is going to be eliminated, and it's therefore not a credible deterrent threat, because you might be taken out first. So that's the motivation to strike first, and the risk there is that it kind of pushes both countries to, you know, be the first one that uses nuclear weapons. So one response to that is basically going out publicly and saying, okay, we will not use nuclear weapons in a first strike, even though according to this logic, you know, it might kind of make sense in certain scenarios. Now, that logic gets appended a little bit when you factor in submarines. And not all countries have the ability to launch nuclear-tipped 
intercontinental ballistic missiles from submarines. And in fact, India only acquired the technology very recently. In, in 2016, they conducted SLBM tests um, with the Arihant, which is the name of their submarine that can launch ballistic, uh, nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. There are questions as to how put together India's submarine-launched ballistic missile capabilities are. It almost sunk because someone like left a hatch open and flooded and caused like billions of dollars worth of damages. And just, you know, just because you launch one or two missiles from the submarine doesn't mean that that weapon is up and working 100% all the time. But when you factor in submarines into this deterrent equation, you have a more credible retaliatory threat. Because even if all your land-based installations, missiles, and nuclear-capable bombers get taken out, your submarine's still out there, and it can launch enough force to take out your opponent's major urban centers. And just to give you a sense of sort of how potent these submarine systems are, let me pull up this article I read a little bit earlier today. Yeah, the U.S. Navy has 18 Ohio-class submarines, four of which can carry 154 cruise missiles each. So 154 times four is 600 missiles just from four of the 18 Ohio-class boats, all of which could potentially be armed with nuclear weapons that are many, many multiple times more powerful than what the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. India doesn't have that capability. It's just moving towards developing it. Pakistan has since... Uh, in India announced its or, or conducted its submarine-based missile test. Pakistan has begun investing more heavily in a submarine program as well. So just to recap, the risk from only having land-based nuclear missiles is they get taken out entirely in a first strike. That encourages both countries to act first unless you factor in submarines, in which case there's a guarantor, uh, guaranteed retaliatory strike, at least in theory, and that should discourage the use of first strike for either side because there's no guarantee that you can eliminate their nuclear strikes before you get hit by the submarine's missiles. Okay. Now, India has a no first use policy. Pakistan does not. Pakistan doesn't have a first use policy and in fact developed their nuclear weapons in part in response to India developing its own nuclear weapons first, but also because it's just not as doesn't have as powerful of a military, a conventional military as does India. So if push come to shove, Pakistan is worried that India could launch a ground offensive into Kashmir, take back territory that Pakistan says is its, and the Pakistan conventional forces wouldn't be able to stop them if India really put its military and economic resources into the attack, for example. So Pakistan doesn't have a no-first-use doctrine. They would be willing to use nuclear weapons in response to an Indian invasion. However, they kind of don't want to just start striking Indian cities because that they know that will also draw a retaliation. So instead of using strategic nuclear weapons in a first strike, which just means weapons that are meant to basically eliminate entire population centers like cities or large military installations, stuff like that, that their first use would probably be tactical nuclear weapons. And unlike strategic nuclear weapons, 
tactical nuclear weapons are meant to be used on the battlefield. So in response to tactical maneuvering of enemy military units to basically push them back, prevent them from invading if your conventional forces can't do that alone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, recognizing this, India developed what's called its Cold Start Doctrine. They know that Pakistan doesn't really have a no-first-use doctrine, and that if India were to launch a massive invasion of Pakistan, that they would be at threat of incurring a tactical nuclear strike from Pakistan. So, instead of launching a big, massive invasion that Pakistan can't deter, the Cold Start Doctrine dictates, in the event of a war, an offensive by India... That, that is just under Pakistan's nuclear threshold. So it's just not a big enough attack where it'd be worth Pakistan risking that first use if it definitely met nuclear retaliation uh, from India. Just not really worth it for Pakistan. And this is going to be important when I loop back around to the airstrike that just happened in Pakistan. So how, what exactly is that threshold? That's, of course, the question, right? It's, it's a little bit of a guessing game. But sort of the, the classic scenario of how some strategists think that nuclear war would break out on the Indian subcontinent would be this offensive from India that is then repelled with the use of tactical nuclear weapons by Pakistan and India responds with uh, a broader strategic retaliation, which then presumably Pakistan would also respond with a broader strategic retaliation and destroy cities in both of the countries. That's kind of, that's one of the ways that, that analysts and str- strategists think that nuclear war could break out there. But in the last couple of years, uh, since Modi has gone elected in 2014, there have been a couple of, Indian military officials, some both in power, some former, uh, as well as some documentation, uh, like BJP papers that were published, some of which were subsequently retracted or redacted, gave some indication that that might not be the case. If India knew for certain that Pakistan was arming and readying its tactical nuclear weapon inventory for a first strike against an Indian offensive into Kashmir or Pakistan, that there really wouldn't be a point of waiting if you knew it was imminent, because then you would just be willingly exposing Indian forces to massive casualties by this tactical nuclear strike. 
So in that case, a first strike by India would be merited. So in the last couple of years, India's no first use doctrine has actually been called into question. Part of this is kind of like analysts reading the tea leaves of what different Indian leaders say, but kind of enough has gone on to at least raise that question. And, you know, there have also been analysts that say, no, no, that doesn't really make any sense because similar to the problem we talked about earlier, India might not even know where all of Pakistan's tactical nuclear weapons are or where the delivery mechanisms, artillery or um, rocket systems, for example, where they're all located. So India wouldn't even be able to do a, a first strike that eliminates all of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. This has always been a problem with deterrence theory. You never know for sure that you know where all of the other guys' nuclear weapons are going to be, and that's a problem in the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union as well. So India has, in summary, kind of called into question its no-first-use policy in the last couple of years, and people are a little worried that maybe this calls into question the stability of the equilibrium between the two countries in terms of their nuclear deterrence effect. It's a little hard to know, right? Now, coming back to the airstrike, we know that this was an unprecedented attack, but of course then the question is, okay, it's unprecedented and it's bigger and it's more direct. It's on Pakistan's territory, not just in Kashmir. Does that cross the cold start threshold where Pakistan would feel compelled to respond with nuclear weapons? I think the answer is probably no right now because it seems like Pakistan's first use of tactical nuclear weapons would really be meant to deter an Indian ground invasion into Pakistan. So it would be used for ground forces, and India has not used any unusually large ground forces to push into Kashmir in the last couple of days. Heavy gunfighting and artillery being exchanged on the Kashmir over the line of control where the standoff basically is in Kashmir between Pakistan and India. But this isn't necessarily abnormal. There are constant exchanges of fire across the border. People are constantly being killed. It's very low numbers. Each flare-up, you'll often you'll see like between one to five or six people killed, maybe 10 injured. And I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm just saying that we're talking about relatively small forces here that don't trigger any sort of threshold for Pakistan to use nuclear weapons. And we haven't seen any reports yet as of... 7 p.m. Pacific time on February 26th, that any unusually large ground forces are being deployed in an offensive posture along the line of control into Pakistan. That said, Pakistan has called for the convening of, let's see, what is this called? It's their security council that, here it is, yeah, the National Command Authority, which is the security institution that basically controls Pakistan's nuclear arsenal. Now, you might say, okay, that sounds pretty threatening. Uh, isn't that what would happen if, you know, there's going to be some sort of nuclear response? And, I mean, my guess is probably not. It'd be a more rapid response than, like, waiting for a press announcement and then saying, oh, we're going to get together tomorrow to discuss this before we potentially send our country into nuclear war. Chances are, and this is a little bit of my read on the situation. So if this is me doing some of the thinking, then excuse me. But my read on the situation is Pakistan really, they don't have a whole lot of options. They, they're they going to have to retaliate somehow, I think. But that they're probably not going to want to do anything serious. So by calling together a con this meeting of the National Command 
uh, National Command Authority. It might be a way of them kind of like beating their chest a little bit and saying, okay, yeah, well, we're doing something about this. But in, in reality, if they were going to use their tactical nuclear weapons, it all would have happened a lot faster. So it really doesn't seem like one airstrike crosses this cold start threshold. At the same time, those Mirage 2000 jets are all nuclear-capable weapon systems. They can all carry nuclear weapons. So presumably, unless there was some sort of communication beforehand between the Indian and Pakistani governments, which I'll come back to in a minute, presumably Pakistan's military wouldn't have known if those jets were carrying nuclear conventional missiles when they flew over into Pakistani territory. Now, I mentioned a second ago about communication between the Indian and Pakistani governments. It's possible that there are some factions in, in the Pakistani government that maybe were notified of this ahead of time. Clearly, while the military uh, and security institutions in Pakistan are close with the Taliban, the Afghani Taliban, and are close with jaish e mohammed and other jihadist militant groups, doesn't mean all of the factions in the Pakistani government are in favor of them. So one idea that's been floated is that the Indian military and those anti-jihadist factions in the Pakistani government actually kind of coordinated and were given a heads up and India just, you know, went and killed a bunch of terrorists, which for this one faction in Pakistan was what they wanted anyways. Now, Pakistani generals claimed that as soon as Indian jets crossed territory in into Pakistan, Pakistani jets were scrambled and the Indian jets were intercepted. And this is why they had to let go of their payload early and in a rushed fashion because they were caught by Pakistani jets. There are other sources saying that Pakistan was caught completely with its pants down, unaware, and no jets were scrambled. And this is basically India showing that it is now willing to test Pakistan's cold start threshold a little bit more than it has been in the past. And is saying, you know, we're no longer willing to hold off using conventional force in retaliation for these terrorist attacks. And India um, basically holds the Pakistani government responsible for these attacks that occur on its territory because a lot of the times Pakistan's military and these, these jihadist groups collaborate explicitly and overtly. I mean, this is not, that's not sensational. But... It's difficult for India, or it has been difficult for India, to really respond too hard outside of Kashmir because of the nuclear threat. But now that India has this submarine-based capability where it can, it can guarantee to Pakistan, in theory, a nuclear retaliation even if all of India's land-based systems get taken out first in a Pakistani first strike, Pakistan will still be destroyed. So, so in the past... When India felt maybe it, it couldn't really test the waters too much and limit its responses to terrorist attacks to maybe hitting back against Pakistani positions within Kashmir, India is now testing that threshold a little bit more and saying, okay, we are going to respond on Pakistani soil against these terrorist organizations if there's a terrorist attack in India. And the threat's a little bit more serious because India can now theoretically guarantee that the retaliatory nuclear strike from submarines. And this isn't just me speculating. I'm, I'm reading here from an article from the Pulitzer Center that a, a colleague of mine sent me. And in it, in 
let's see, January of 2018. Yeah, 2018, January of 2018. So after India has their theoretical submarine-based nuclear threat, General Bipin Rawat, the Army's chief of staff, said overtly that India was willing to test what Pakistan's nuclear threshold was. And he said, I quote, we will call their bluff if given the task. We will not say we cannot cross the border because they have nuclear weapons. In other words, we're not going to stand for these terrorist attacks that we know you're carrying out just because you have nuclear weapons. We're going to respond. So, okay, that's a lot of information. I'm going to call the episode there. The quick summary is nuclear weapons are clearly important. They play a role in thinking about this most recent strike by India and Pakistan, which is an unprecedented strike, even though it's not necessarily an unprecedented escalation of conflict between the two. It doesn't seem like this airstrike crosses Pakistan's nuclear use threshold. It doesn't really even seem close. As far as we know, there are no ground forces used. Although reasonably, if there was to be a big ground invasion, you'd see airstrikes first, but you'd see massive airstrikes, a lot more than 12 jets just hitting a target once. Both sides are claiming different things. The Indian side might be a little bit more credible because it seems like they did use precision munitions provided by Israel. And they also had a number of Russian jets on standby, supposedly as well, in case the, the mirages weren't effective in their first run. And we covered a little bit of the nuclear doctrines that both both countries have, the cold start idea, India's cold start idea, which is, you know, if we were to initiate a conflict, we would do it below your nuclear use threshold line, and why Pakistan doesn't have a no first use doctrine in the first place. I think this is a very important event that just occurred. It's one of the most important things probably in the world within the last week or certainly 48 hours that isn't getting a lot of media coverage. And at Reconsider, that's one of the two things we do. Focus on important things that maybe aren't getting picked up in other outlets and challenging perspective by offering competing narratives. I hope I have done both with this episode. When we come back, we will have Eric back on the show and we'll have more Reconsider shenanigans. Uh, Not that nuclear war is shenanigans, but you know what I mean. This is Xander signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.